Well, of course I'm going to wear a mask. I'm gonna, yes, I'm going to wear this mask. Yeah, oh, well, so what if it's a goalie mask? I found it on the street when I was out for a walk, and I think it should be perfectly fine. It covers my whole face. Wait, oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano, and welcome back to another edition of Off-Road, an RLTP podcast. Uh, listen, we're going to be making a lot of changes to Off-Road in the next few weeks, and uh, I think that uh, you will be pleased with the results, because you know what? These are different times. You hear it all the time, and there's no sense just pretending that things aren't different. So we're going to change things up a little bit. We will still have interviews, but we are going to have a variety of people like an interview in each podcast. Uh, We'll change it up a little bit next time, and then we'll change it up even more the following podcast. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure you will enjoy the changes. Listen, before we change anything... Let's talk to Lynn Kurdzil Formato. Lynn has been around since the beginning of my career. She helped me have a career in theater. And I don't know whether you want to thank her for that or curse her for that. I personally will thank her. But she is the one who did the choreography for the first professional show I ever did at the Cavanoke back in 1981. The first time they did a funny thing happen on the way to the forum. And so I finally got to sit down and talk to her via Skype because there is no in-person talking anymore. And Well, frankly, I'm still getting used to how to record these things without making them sound like I'm the bottom of a tin can. So please forgive the sound quality. I'm working on it. But seriously, who cares about the sound quality? Because Lynn is just delightful. I think you will really enjoy this interview. She talks about her past. She talks about her future. She talks about her family. It's Lynn Kurdzil from Out of the Way. You've never heard her before, but here she is on Off-Road, and RLTP podcast. Enjoy. Just off the record, how come you're Linda on this? Well, my real name is Linda. That's my actual legal name. Oh. And I'm not sure why it's not, because normally I use Lynn on Skype or anything else, but I have LKF. I actually mm-hmm. have LKF Disney as my Skype name, so. Yeah, yeah. But Linda is my actual legal name. Your actual legal name. It is, but you know, when I was in high school, there were two Linda Kurzels, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, we had we went to school together. We were both in the same class and everything. And not at all and, related? No, not at all related. Wow. Uh, we had, of course, different middle names. But then when I started hyphenating, when I got married... Uh, double Linda didn't sound good with Curzio Formato. Lynn was better. One too syllable. many, too many damn better. syllables. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, agree. it's too many syllables anyway. But you know, <laughs> I know. But now nobody cares because you're Lynn Curzio Formato. You're, right, exactly. you know, you're world famous now. So, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But I already had obviously a career in Buffalo, and so I didn't want to, you know, legally for theater get rid of my maiden name mm-hmm. because that's how people knew me. Yes. Know? You know, I, I I had to go back to see uh, when we met because I couldn't remember the year of of forum at at the Cavanoke, which was uh, which I blame you because that started my whole career, <laughs> uh, quote unquote career. But it was it was 1981, and that tells me that you were a child at the time, because I know. I know your age because I know my age and I know that I'm older, but you, you were just a kid, really. How did that even start? But not, not really a kid because I, I mean, I got married in 83 and I was 28 then. So I guess I was like, what, 26 when we did. (laughs) To me, that looks, that's, that's a kid to me (laughs) because I got married at 23 and that was really stupid. You know, I, I, I choreographed my first show when I was 17 um, I, I, Neil Raddis for Neil Raddis, because of course, everyone presumes that a dancer can always choreograph, right? Yes. And that's not necessarily true. But I've worked with case, some of them. Yes. In my case, it turned out to be, you know, absolutely what I love to do as far as the, being on the other side of the footlights goes. And I continue to perform of course, but and then, of course, then you get asked to direct because people presume if you can choreograph that you can also direct, which is also not necessarily true. No. But fortunately, again, through a lot of my collaboration with Neil, I had also done a lot of, you know, 
quote unquote straight acting. And, um, and I studied acting in school as well. Saul was one of my professors. Oh dear. Yes. The dearest um, man. Yes, yes, absolutely. So did Dave, so, so did David find you through Neil? No, David actually found me through Jim Dion. Oh, Jim Dion, of course. Because I was working at St. Joe's, choreographing at St. Joe's for swing choir and for the musicals. And David had done a lot of work for St. Joe's, not when I was there, before I got there. But that's how he found me. He asked Jim to musical direct, and they needed a choreographer, and so <laughs> there it was. And, and a lot of the girls who were in the show um, as courtesans came from either UB or UB St. Joe's Connection. Okay, so then now we need to go all the way back. So you're you're a local girl, obviously, yes? Obviously, you, yes. You grew up where? I actually grew up on the east side of Buffalo, right down the street, literally from the Broadway market. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I was born in 55, so I was living basically during the height of the civil rights um, era in the middle of a, a very split and divided neighborhood. It I was, was just going to ask, was it were things really hopping in the neighborhood at that point? Yeah, they were sometimes. I mean, not always, but there were some incidences where things might get a little heated or dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so then you went to school in a Buffalo public school. Did you go? Did you go to? Uh... I went to a Catholic school. Um, my my parents. I I went to Bishop Colton for high school. I went to Saint Stanislaus for grammar school, and yes. then I went to Bishop Colton for high school. And then after in my sophomore year, they ended up closing the high schools. So then I finished out my career in high school at Villa Maria Academy. And then from there to UB? No, not right away. Uh, from there, I decided to you know pursue pursue just I was doing theater and other pickup jobs as everyone in as a theater artist in Buffalo does and so I was uh, performing and choreographing did you get your theater bug in grade school were you were you were you yes. were you go you must have been going to some dance studio of some sort well that's another good story so um, <laughs> so uh, basically I got my theater bug before I ever went to school, my late brother Dan and I would keep our babysitter captive and we created many, many shows based on, you know, the variety shows of Ed Sullivan, if you will, using the louver doors on our bedrooms for our curtains. <laughs> so we, we kept our babysitter captive doing um, doing shows of our own. <laughs> Sometimes we would uh, enlist our cousins to help. Yes. But I've always I've always seen pictures in my head to music and, and I've always danced before I ever took a lesson. Yes. I begged for dance classes for years and years for my birthday present. My parents didn't have the money or really the knowledge of how to do that. Yes. So when I got to be a freshman in high school, I, I, I was doing, you know, our little shows at Bishop Colton, but some nuns and my parents forced me to go audition at Bishop Ryan for South Pacific. And I was cast as Leah. I had very, very long, dark hair all the way down <laughs> to my waist in the back. Sure. And I was cast as Leah, and I met Dorothy Hobart. Dorothy Hobart um, owned a dance studio with her sister. Her husband was Thomas Hobart, who used to be the head of the Buffalo School. Oh, yes, um, I remember that. Yeah. Name. Yes. So Miss Dorothy was our choreographer, and, you know, she saw something in me, and she allowed me to take as many dance classes as I wanted each week. I would go home on the weekends and help her clean her house, and sometimes I would babysit her children. And I would go to the studio with her on the weekends and I would sometimes assist at baby classes and I would do, you know, like take the money at the desk and whatnot. And so in a year I caught up to the advanced classes and, and seriously, she gave me so, she and her sister Lori both gave me so many private lessons. I just got to see Miss Dorothy again at one of Second Generation Theater Company's performances. I think it was the opening night of Toxic Avenger. She came with Mary Coppola. Oh, yes. Because, you know, of course, Joyce Coppola was also a very, very prominent dance teacher. And so, again, I got to tell her again how much I appreciated everything that she did for me. And she did that basically because you, were, you weren't paying, you were doing odd jobs, basically, for her so that you could take dance lessons. But she didn't need to do that. Now, before that, I actually wanted to be a librarian, and I taught myself how to dance at home at my kitchen sink with books, out of books. 
That's amazing. I, I put Talia Mars for Steps in Ballet on my kitchen sink in front of me, and I did Ballet Bar with it. I mean, I read many, many other books. I, I, I literally, and this is no lie, went through all the books in our the library that was on Broadway. Oh <laughs> so I, I just, I just would go through everything. I read all the Agatha Christie, everything, just anything I get my hands on. Where do you, reading. where do you suppose this, this spark for dancing? ignited in you just well, TV watching because you know I've always tremendously admired dancers I could watch them all day long but what was the spark that you that you said I have to do this you know I, I know it's going to sound you know new agey or whatever but I, I do kind of believe in past lives and influences from beyond if you will mm -hmm. and I, I seriously have always seen movement in my head ever since I was a young girl. But there is, on both sides of my parents' family, on my mom's side, they're super creative. My mother had a beautiful singing voice, and she played piano by ear. My Uncle Harry was an incredible interior decorator. My Aunt Eileen used to decorate cakes of all sorts, you know, make dollhouse furniture. I mean, they were just, and then on my dad's side, every single one of my dad's brothers could polka. And, you know, that's where I was first introduced to the Beatles was at my uncle's house, you know, <laughs> Beatles music and dancing. So I, I think there was music and creativity, you know, because my brother was also an artist. My brother was a visual artist. I mean, he could sing and dance. I dragged him into the shows in high school too, because you know, you always need boys. Yes. Um, and to dancing, I made him come and take dance classes too. But he was—he was a visual artist, a painter, um, an illustrator. He wrote his own music. So um, you know, so it's there somewhere in the genes. I think somewhere in the genes there was a, the arts. Uh, yeah, my dad was in furniture, and he would go to market every year. You know, there's markets all over the country. And, of course, one of those places was New York. Mm -hmm. So he saw so many original Broadway casts wow. in so many shows. And when he went to see Hair, he told my mother about it in private in the um, kitchen. You know, he didn't want my brother and I to hear. <laughs> but, of course, we ended up listening to the album, and, which we got from the library. The downtown library had everything in stock all the original cast albums, all the librettos, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I got to see, though, my first Broadway show is my dad took my mom and my brother and I to New York uh, when he went to market one year. And we saw Ethel Merman in Hello, Dolly. And the next night we saw Lauren Bacall in Applause. Did you have, as, as obviously Mrs. Hobart, but did you have other strong influences in your life? Uh, well, I should say inspirational people in dance that, that really influenced you, that really were, you know, either mentors or just people who you observed and you, and you became inspired by them? Well, you know, I mean, I think everyone of our generation grew up watching on PBS or some other, you know, televised elements of or just the ed sullivan old, show the we, old mgm movie musicals mm -hmm. were highly influential you know all of the stars from fred astaire to gene kelly to donald o'connor to sid Charisse, those were all people that were um inspirational and then obviously you have many teachers father roman who was the director at bishop ryan people that encourage you to do what you're going to do but for me it really wasn't until i got into college at, well no i shouldn't say that before i went to college neil radis was a major influence in my life and i learned so much from him about directing and yes. acting of course and then just he does everything so i learned about scenic design i learned about lighting all of those things and then when when I finally did go back to school um, and to get my degree at UB, then people like Saul Elkin and Linda Swinnick, Tom Rallabay, Ginger Burke. I mean, there's there's a myriad of people. How did you first get involved, get connected to Neil? Well, when I got my star, he actually gave, he had framed for me my audition sheet from Thames at Sea when I was 17. Oh, is that? I was 17. That was the first time I auditioned for Dames at Sea. How sweet. And that, yeah. So he kept, I kept it. 
and he framed it for me and gave that to me at the star ceremony. So I auditioned uh, just the same way, you know, I got to meet so many other people. Uh, community theater was really big then. We hadn't even gotten into the dinner theater phase. Mm -hmm. So um, he also was doing, he was directing Dames at Sea at the Jewish Center, but he then also was doing lots of stuff with the Appletown players. So we just did the community theater circuit until we started doing dinner theater. And then we all started working together on dinner theater. Wow. So where did you make the leap to choreography? So, um... Was it of necessity? <laughs> Nobody's going to do this. Who we, you know, It was kind of out of necessity. Um, <laughs> I was cast as kid in Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd. Um, this is when I was 17, playing opposite Joey Mombre as Cocky and Tom Owen Tom. as Sir. And there was Patty Leeming, who was married to Peter Quam, was supposed to choreograph and something happened and she wasn't available to do it anymore. So that was the, oh, how would you like to choreograph? <laughs> and I was in the show, but you know, I'm young and foolish, whatever. I still have my notebook from that. I have my choreography notebooks from every single show that I've ever done. Wow, that's amazing. And every single Zodiac piece I've ever done. And now, of course, we get to record them on video. So you don't have to be quite as crazy, but but I, ha I have to write everything down. So speaking of the Zodiac, so you had written notebooks of each choreographed number, each... Mm -hmm. I still do. How many pages does a... Because <laughs> I've seen your notebook, obviously. I've seen you using things and you... And, and, I don't know how many pages you have in there. I'm sure you have at least a dozen devoted to, if this doesn't work for Peter, we'll try this. And if this doesn't work, we'll try. But we'll get into that later. But let's talk about your, your tenure at UB. And you graduated from there, obviously. And then somehow you ended up back there teaching. Well, that was an interesting process. You know, I didn't go back to get my degree until I was already 25. So I already had, you know, a reputation and a career in theater in Buffalo. Sure. And had worked with people that were on faculty at UB or had worked with students who were currently at UB, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, I just, it was really my husband who pushed me to maybe you should go get a degree we not to be used for anything. And for me, it was like, you know, when you direct and choreograph, you're always outputting. And I felt like I wanted some more input. I like to be... Um, pushed and I like to learn. I'm constant lifelong student, as I'm sure you are as yes. well. So when I went back to UB, when I went to UB, of course, I start, I took dance classes. I took acting classes. I took everything. I did technical theater. Mm -hmm. I stage managed. And then they asked me if I wanted to choreograph for Zodiac because <laughs> I already I was older. And, and so I said, had you been performing with Zodiac? No. Just from dance classes and, and, and your yeah, reputation around yeah. town, they said, would you like to do Zodiac? Yeah. Wow. So I did a, I did a piece, a Broadway-based piece. Joyce Darrow was in it, Tony Colucci, and Michael Zira. So anyway, about, I think it was like my second or third year, they asked me if I wanted to teach class. And so I did a class and people liked it. So I started teaching when I was still a student, you know, how like sometimes graduate students do. And then I stayed on to get my graduate degree. Of course, I did eventually dance with Zodiac. I did dance with the company and I kept choreographing for the company and I team taught and also assisted Tom Relevate on lots of classes. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to get to work with Linda Swinnick and Ginger Burke and, and of course, Saul and Derek Campbell was mm -hmm. teaching there at the time. And so it was, you know, it was very informative and Linda Swinnick was an encyclopedia of dance and I was... You were a sponge. It, you soaked up everything. Introduced to new things and got to do some Shakespeare in the Park for Saul and it was great and for me it was a perfect blending of the two things that I was interested in because I love the research aspect of doing a show that's one of my favorite things is the the research part of it you know mm -hmm. the reading and and then translating and theatricalizing this is why I enjoy so much working with you and you, and you know I've never liked you but I, I, I so <laughs> so love working with you 
whether it's as choreographer or as director, because you're so organized. And you, there's not a minute wasted. Everything is all planned out. And that book of yours has every detail you could possibly need in it. But you can tell that you've done your homework. There's never anybody, you never come in the door and say, I'm not sure what I want to do with this. What's your, it's just, it just never, it never happens that way. Well, and so I know you, you like to do that sort of I do. prep that's, work. See, that's the Capricorn. My birth sign is Capricorn. Me but too. My, but my rising sign is Leo. So you kind of get the, the big fiery creative combined with the goat that keeps going up the mountaintop <laughs> and won't give up until the work is done. <laughs> but part of it is because I what I love about being on the other side of the footlights is being able to be part of all aspects. Yes of the process and and actually having a hand in like getting to know all the characters or mm -hmm. getting to know all the music it's so it's just for me it's that that being able to mix everything together but i have to spend a lot of time with it as any director does before i bring it in because i do want to know what do I want to say with this? But then I have to be open to what every other artist brings to the table. Because, because it's a collaboration. This, you're enunciating exactly how I feel about the, the few times that I've had the opportunity to, to direct. And there's just something about having your fingerprints on everything. But it's, it's a collaboration. So everybody comes in and contributes for everything from the costume design to the sound design. Everything has to go together. But you are the one who makes the final decision. But it's, it's the collaboration that is so enjoyable, I find. Of course, every now and then is the way I do it. Because every now and then, because you know me, I always have an opinion. If I'm in a show, I always have an opinion about <laughs> we should have done this or we should have done that. And every now and then I like to be the one who's making all of those choices. But on the other hand, it's so all-encompassing and so it possesses your mind. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night with a notepad. Oh, I got to tell so and so to do this. It's it, it just in your head all the time, and I'm sure that's that's how it works for you when you are doing both choreography and directing. It right. must be super absorbing. But it, you know, it's actually easier to be efficient when you're doing both, mm -hmm. and I think that's why. I mean, when you read about Michael Bennett or Bob Fosse or Jerome Robbins, I think it's one of the reasons that the field sort of shifted in that direction. Is because it actually, especially if you are a choreographer slash dancer, to have your ideas come to fruition or to have more impact on how the product is developed is just a lot easier when you're doing both. Yeah. And of course, people like Fosse spent tons of time with folks like Sandy Meisner and Patty Chayefsky to, you know, really hone that side of his of his skill set. I did um, not. I did not know that. There's there's a huge book like this of things I don't know. Um, <laughs> I do want to talk for a second about how did you end up at Elon? It's Carolina, right? North Carolina. It's North Carolina. And well, did they I seek went, you out? No, no. Actually, after twenty some years at UB, I I was finally on an actual tenure track line, and I didn't get tenure. Oh. Even though the there was unanimous positive voting at the department level and at the dean's level, et cetera, et cetera. When it came up to the president's office, they decided that they weren't going to get Oh, my. You know what? This is the first time I've heard the actual story because, you know, when it happened, many of us did this. <gasps> What? And but then then there was were rumors that it was oh no no it wasn't that it was Lynn's choice and then it, oh no no Lynn got an offer from Elon and no 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 she was let go no she wasn't let go so I I really never knew the whole story. Well, but, I did you know I didn't get tenure and as you know when you don't get tenure at a university you um, get like a year to look for a job they basically give you a, a grace year so to speak and during that time I applied to a number of places and I got a number of job offers and through a lot of my friends that I knew that were in academia and had actually had some experience both with Elon as a matter of fact Peter Sham Norm Sham's older brother yes. had worked at Elon for like a year and he called me because he's still friends with Kathy McNeila he talked to me for I swear like 45 minutes convincing me you need to go there you'll love it you're exactly what they need blah 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 it's so, a private and, college oh yes oh it's 
it's their campus is like a registered botanical garden. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And the musical theater, com the musical theater department is considered one of the top 10 in the country. So anyway, and then David Grapes had gone to um, UNCG and he and so some of the other places that he's goes, you need to go to North Carolina. It's a, you know, a good spot. They have theater down there and the weather's great, blah, blah, blah. So, had you applied there before that or could no, you said no, you were no, looking? No, no, no. That all, it just kind of all where people were looking for folks at the time mm -hmm. and they were expanding. Um, they wanted another theater dance person. They already had one, but they wanted to add another one to their faculty. And so I got the job and then I was there for, you know, 13 years. And, and you taught other, other than dance? Oh yeah. I taught um, music theater literature, which is the analyzation of script and score and, um, you know, what clues are there in the script and score. I love script analysis. And, love it. And to put it up on its feet. But it was also a, the students had a major project where they had, after we did the first half of the semester, then they, I broke them into teams and they had to present for the entire class period using video, well, they could do whatever they wanted, but they had these major books that were like this big, where they had to show all of their back work in the script and score. In other words, they couldn't just write about what they thought. They had to show literally circling, highlighting where they got their ideas from and what they were referring to. It was really, I was one of my favorite classes I ever taught. And of course, I directed and choreographed a lot of the shows. I founded what's known as the MT Box, which is a, a musical, like we did not have a black box show when I went in. And it started out as a workshop to develop new musicals, but then it also became larger than life and started turning into a place where we produced musicals, a third musical of the season that we would not do on the main stage. And I taught Fosse, which again was not just a dance class, but a research-based class where students had major writing to do. Yeah, so I taught I taught a lot of things, but you know my, you know that my mom has Alzheimer's and so things just started to get a little more difficult here at home. You know, Michael was bearing a large part of the brunt on his shoulders and so we just decided it was time for me to come home and since I was old enough to technically retire, that's what I did. You're, you're jumping ahead to the questions I was just going to ask. What, <laughs> you know, what, what ended at Elon and, and it was part family decision. Mostly family decision. And then Buffalo coming back because of course your mom's still here. Yes. Do you have other family? Family here too, Lynn? Yes. Well, my brother passed away when he was 40. So that's, and most of my, well, all of my mom's family is, is passed away, except for some of my cousins, of course. And they live, one of them still lives in, in Buffalo, the surrounding area, but people are scattered. Right. And then um, most of my dad's siblings have passed away as well. But I still do, again, have cousins in the area. So, but Michael's family is here. Michael's family, his brothers are all here. Well, that so, makes yeah. it nice to have family yeah. to it. So, I, I mean, I wish this was going to be visual because it's not because I'm looking at all the knickknacks on your shelf and they're <laughs> they're they're very distracting to me. Uh, but Sorry. and I'm wondering, I wonder what that one's for. I wonder, I wonder what that one's for. Oh, this is Betty Boop is over there. Oh, there's anyway. Well, that's I neither have, here nor there. Of course, I have a huge Disney collection. I have a huge <laughs> theater collection. What's the connection with Disney? You, you of course must have done Disney shows. Uh, I have done a lot of Disney shows, but that's not it. When Michael and I got married, he had never been to Hawaii, and I love Hawaii. I, I've been there. I've been there several times when I was single, and I wanted to go to Hawaii for a honeymoon. And he wanted to go to Disney. I had never been to Disney my entire life before 28, so we compromised and stayed at the Polynesian Village <laughs> oh. at Walt Disney World. And, <laughs> and that was also the year that Michael almost died. Um, just before our wedding, he had a bleeding ulcer. He had to go into the hospital. At one point, his heart actually stopped. They had to replace the blood in his body like three times over. Oh, my goodness. Um, we weren't sure they were even going to release him in time for us to get married. Uh, but they did. But he was still, we have a great picture of him holding his scar, throwing the garter in pain. <laughs> um, so we postponed, we postponed our honeymoon because there was no way we were going to do it. You know, wow! How are you going to go to Disney World? So we didn't end up end up going until the beginning of December. And at that time, at the beginning of December, I mean, Disney was used to be empty. 
So it was just, and only Epcot and the Magic Kingdom were open at that time. So it kind of turned into our place and some place that we had such a great time together that we started going back. And then, you know, we just, we fell in love with Disney through that. Oh, that's that's a lovely story. I thought it was going to be because you had done... God help me, you know, Disney cruises or something, as a lot of kids coming out of college do these but days. When when I was young enough to be dancing on a cruise, Disney Cruise Line did not exist. Oh, okay. Disney Cruise Line wasn't a thing at that time. And then, of course, since that time, um, and we've gone, we now own DVC, the Disney Vacation Club, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, Buffalo theater people like oh, yes. and, and whatnot who also loved uh, Disney, you know, Louis Coliacovo, I mean, all Disney freaking fanatics, airing dandies. Yes. So, <laughs> So, you know, we started just going to Disney on a, on a regular basis and really loved it. And then um, I sort of wanted to get an idea of what it was like down there. So I actually took a leave of absence from UB. I auditioned the year that Saul and I did West Side Story at the Pfeiffer with Jeffrey Denton as Riff. I auditioned for Universal Studios. They were opening Universal in mm-hmm. Orlando. And so I took like a year and a half off. And so I got the gig as an actor. <laughs> Nothing but speaking. So I was just acting. <laughs> um, and I went down and I worked at Universal Health to open Universal Studios as an actor. This slipped my mind, but I do have to ask you. Your worldwide fame now, how did this happen? Uh, you, did that happen while you were at Elon or did it after you came back to Buffalo? It, um, it must have happened before that, yes? It, it started actually when I was still in Buffalo. I belonged to an organization, Music Theater Educators Alliance International, which when I joined was really limited just to the heads of BFA programs in music theater. So when and I was the head of the music theater program, which I founded at UB. I joined this organization. And through that organization, I got to meet a lot of different people from universities around the country. And then we really started our we did our first really big international conference during the time that I was serving as vice president for conferences for the organization. So when we did that first conferences, I spent a lot of time with Søren Muller and Thomas Agerhorn. Søren was the head of the Danish Musical Academy at the time, and Thomas was the head of the acting program. The conference was divided between Denmark and Hamburg, Germany. So I spent tons of time with Søren, and I spent a ton of time with Thomas. Thomas and I, on the three-hour bus ride from Fredericia to Hamburg, we talked nonstop. <laughs> he is like my long-lost brother. I'm not kidding. So about, I want to say maybe a year later, two years later, from after this conference, I was already at Elon at the time, and I had been to Russia once. Surin got a hold of me and said, we've lost our director for this showcase. They do a showcase every year where Act 1 is one full show and Act 2 is another full show, but they cut them both down to like an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. It's a long story. So Mm -hmm. he said, we've lost our director for this show. It's a world premiere, Beatsville, by Wendy Lee Wolf and Glenn Slater. Are you interested? And I said, yes, I would love to do that, but I'm supposed to be in Moscow during that time. Let me get a hold of Katya and see if there's anything we can do. Fortunately, Katya was able to change the dates of the of the two-week workshop that I was doing in Moscow to actually a time that was better for them. So I went and did this workshop for them at the Danish Musical Academy. It was great. And it was a great experience. And then I flew from Denmark to Moscow from Moscow back to Copenhagen and then home. Wow. Yeah, so it was pretty great. But since then, I was doing the showcases at the Frederica, you know, the Musical Academy in Frederica, and then Surin became the executive artistic director of the theater in Frederica. So he had contacted me and wanted me to direct in their first season. And I'm like, Surin, I, I just, I need a lot more time. I can't even like take a sabbatical, but I'm not directing over winter term at Elon, so I could come and do Edges. I had already done Edges for Elon with Pasek and Paul mm-hmm. coming in and doing a workshop. And then we... It was a really cool thing because it was in their smaller theater. And we did, I did a whole thing with um, media. You know, when Pascal Paul first wrote the show, it was about Facebook. 
But of course, since then, Facebook had blown up. And so I did it. I used everything from words with friends and Twitter. And we did live feed with iPads. And I really made it about how people do and don't connect because I think that was one of their intentions with the original show. They came in to see the show and they said, well, until we saw this version, Elon was our favorite, but now we love this one. <laughs> um, and it was really, it was so cool because it was the first time we really got to, I, that I really got to experiment with LED screens and whatnot. The next season, they got the permission from Disney to do the European premiere of Aladdin before it even played on Broadway was they had given it to a few places in the U.S. and then they asked CERN if he wanted to do it. So he got a hold of me with enough time for me to apply for a sabbatical. That was 2012. So I applied for a sabbatical. That was my sabbatical project. I directed and choreographed the European premiere. The folks from Disney International were super pleased. And and then from then on, Saren asked me back for a number of projects, including many other Disney. The, I did The Little Mermaid for them. I did um, I choreographed Hunchback, which Thomas Abraham directed. I directed and choreographed Tarzan. And then Felipe Gamba, who is the main pivot man for Disney International, he then asked, set me up and asked me if I wanted to do The Little Mermaid in Brazil. <laughs> which I did. And then last year, I did Beauty and the Beast in Colombia, which is Felipe's hometown. I see, I see. And, and it was for Misi Productions. And Misi is the woman that he started with when he was a child. He was on a television show that Misi wrote the music for. And then, so, and she has this, she had founded this entire school and this entire company. And so he wanted me to do Beauty and the Beast with this company that, and hit in his hometown, which meant a lot to me. Before we began rehearsals, I had already been there for auditions and I had spent like a week and a half with Misi almost 24-7. She's a, she was a remarkable woman. During November, it was at Thanksgiving time, I was doing a convention for Dance Masters down in Orlando, and I got a call early in the morning and an email from Felipe to say, I wanted you to know this before you hear it from anyone else. Misi was doing her 30th anniversary. They had did a holiday show every year. Felipe was in the audience. Misi stopped dead in her speech. She dropped to the ground, and she died before they could get her to the hospital. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, so it was like this woman is like the mother of musical theater in Colombia. She was the mother and the leader to so many it, I just, I can't even tell you what her company is a family. Her, now her nephew, Felipe Salazar, m many of the same names, many other places, Russia, Scandinavia, yes, yes. South America. A lot of people have the same names, <laughs> first names. But anyway, so her nephew, Felipe Salazar, is now running the company. But when I got there, I think I, like, I was, I became the mother figure, um, how I work and... Because they and needed it. Was, it was just a wonderful experience. And so, oh my God, such hard workers, such talented people, musical theater people, wherever you go in the world, they are exactly the same. In Moscow, the first time I was there, we went to an opening night. It was an opening night of the season party, say like a curtain up kind of thing. Yes. And you can, my husband will vouch for this. We walk into the bar and I swear to God, it's Javier Bustias and Mary Kate O'Connell that are hosting this party. I kid I kid you not. I kid you not. <laughs> Javier's counterpart, I believe, was Cuban, but it, it didn't matter. Close it enough, was, yes. It was Javier and Mary-Kate that were hosting this big party. There's a Javier and Mary-Kate everywhere is what you're telling it, me. <laughs> well, and, and I'm yeah, sure there are other types there. that are Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And everyone loves Fosse, and everyone loves Jason Robert Brown and Sondheim. And, you know, it's just they're all the same. So and you, you have need to speak the same language. Well, no, because you do speak the same language, but it's the language of movement. It's the language. Of, <laughs> did, uh, so you have all of these connections. So one thing led to another, and and you yeah. know, one phone call led to another phone call, another. Yeah. I really want to talk about your philosophy of because. I've seen you work as a choreographer, and, and in this last show, you were doing more than choreography. You were doing movement. You were doing entrances and exits. You were smoothing things out. You were making things prettier and more more subtle, smoother. And I think that that all has to do with your expertise in in movement and, and stage pictures, basically. 
And when you start out to do these things, and you say you have your little notebook and everything, and I was joking before about how you have you know, a number of things that you'll try with Peter until you get down to the one <laughs> he can actually do. But do you start out with the, the ideal of what you would like to see and what you would hope? Because you've worked with tremendous dancers, and then you've worked with not-so-tremendous dancers. And so let, let, let's start with this. When you are choreographing an, a particular number, in your head you see it ideally the way you would like to see it if all of the dancers can accomplish everything you can visualize, and then you have alternates available, or, or is it that you go home, think about it and say, this isn't working, this person can't do this, I'm going to try an alternate. So it, it's really a mixture and all of the above. The first thing I start with is really what story do I want to tell? Mm -hmm. The script, of course, helps guide you where you need to go or what is necessary in a particular place. But there is a myriad of ways to get to that point. And so how do I, how do I want to tell the story? So first I see, I, I mean, I basically see moving, moving pictures in my head as I'm listening to the music. The music is a big, for me, a big way into the choreography. Once I have done the research on what time period is this, what dances were people doing? Um, what would these people be doing, these specific people? Because the dances of the peasants are different than the dances of the nobles, yes. you know, depending what show you're in. And the dances of different ethnic groups are different. And dances of young people are different than dances of old people, et cetera, et cetera. But once you get through all of that and decide on what story do I want to tell, what is this music saying to me? And that's a big thing. I mean, you're a musician. If there's the drums are coming at you, it's go, it says something completely different than if there's a violin or a flute. And so emotionally, the music sort of guides you through where you are emotionally. And then the script guides you as to where you are with regards to what do you need to fill in? What do you need to fill in here? Like, how do I get from point A to point B? Am I doing a psychological journey in the character's head that doesn't really take us anywhere in the timeline? Or am I going to kill off two characters at the end of, of Act One of West Side Story? Yes. You know, so do I need to do something that's narrative? And most musical theater dance is narrative in format. It's narrative and format. It does not, it, we're not abstract for the most part. There's really no abstraction in theater. Even if something seems abstract, it's because it came out of something that the script and or a song already spoke to you about. So it just takes us into some psychological or dream state if it's, if it's not linear narrative and fashion. As far as the adaptations go, so so yes, if, if I know that I have a cast, like for American in Paris, I knew I had a cast of phenomenal dancers. Pretty much anything that I came up with, I knew they would be able to do. And um, Jessica Wolfram, Ron, who um, was a Zodiac dancer. I know Jessica. Yes. Her, her, her mother was a teacher in the same building with me. So her mother and amazing. father. Yes. Less than six degrees of separation. So Jessica now lives in Chicago with her husband. Yes. And she's after she finished dancing in the concert dance world, has now become a you know diva musical theater gypsy. So she was my assistant on the show. So she still has, of course, her family here in Buffalo. So she was able to come in during the summer and we did a lot of pre-production did a lot of pre-production and then we put it down on video. So I had that to reference and she she already had it in her body and between the two of us if we had to make adaptations we you know we obviously went with the dancers. In the case of something like indecent it's really just a matter of saying, okay, I know what what technically the steps should be here because of the research that I did. So let me see, do I need to take it slower, give it two beats for each movement as opposed to a single one? Do I just pare this down? Oh, that looks good on that person. That doesn't look good on that person. And then sometimes it's just a matter of knowing you have to review it. So if it's a case like that. 
for the most part, I really try to watch the actors. And in the case of musicals, dancers are also actors. I try to watch them and see how their bodies are responding because the little people in my head can do something really <laughs> fast and make it from one side of the stage to the other. Yes. Or they can suspend themselves for two beats in the air, whereas the person who's actually doing it maybe can't. Or the person who's actually dancing can do even more than I anticipated. You get an Ariane Davido, and without even realizing she can do backbends off of a desk, you know, yes. walkovers off a desk, great. You know, so then you put more in. When you find out my my leading lady for American in Paris, Leanne Esty, oh my God, what an amazing, gorgeous, beautiful ballerina. And she had actually done American in Paris understudying or covering for her twin sister who played Lee's on the national tour. It's such an incestuous world. <laughs> um, but of course we weren't doing, you know, we weren't doing a replica production. It was all new choreography. So I was able to build it right on, on her body. And Oh my God, she was incredible. I mean, there was nothing I could give her that she couldn't do. So that was, that was awesome. But I also had, you know, a, an ensemble full of amazing, incredible dancers. So you're watching, I'll have to use indecent because we just finished that. If you're watching a certain thing, how much time do you give it before you say, he's never going to get this, I'm going to switch? I've been doing this for a long, long time now. So you kind of follow your gut instinct. You can tell if it's something that... Just needs more repetition? Just needs more repetition and that somehow, like, you know, the little walk that Joe did in the Irish jig, the little walk. I knew it was just a matter of him getting the mechanics in his body. Yes. I knew it was totally something that he could get and that there was no need to change it. When we got into like the the snake hips, the buzzard lope walk for you and Alex, that was something that was like, you know, this just doesn't fit them. Mm -hmm. This doesn't fit them. It, like I said, something I've done with someone like Johnny Fredo, for example. And, and it's the right time period and the right move, but it's like, this just doesn't fit their bodies. And so it's no sense, like there's so many other things you can do that tell the story. So why work on something and make it stressful when really it's not, that's not the major point of the show. That's the other thing. Is something going to be, will something lessen the show by you changing it, then you work on it. But if it's a matter of just making another choice of a different color or a different brushstroke, which is still going to tell the same story, then you're like, this is not worth making the actor stress over this. <laughs> You know? Yes. And so that's sort of what you base your choices on. And sometimes it's a matter of, you know, if you have a big group that's dancing together, sometimes you look at it and go, I have to simplify this because I don't think I can ever get this clean. I don't think I can get like this little part with everybody doing the same thing. Does it take a little while for you for it to register with you? Or do you see it, as you said, you see these certain bodies on the stage and you think that particular body is never going to work with this and it hits you immediately are there moments like that i guess like you said with, with yeah. alex and i yeah absolutely absolutely and sometimes i do actually remove people from a formation mm -hmm. not because you know they're, they're do but but sometimes it's like i really want that particular movement and i just think i need to take this person out of the formation or sometimes it just I, doesn't work with his or her body yeah doesn't yeah and that's not you know you can't you can't choreograph for everybody. Every movement isn't going to suit every, suit every person perfectly. So if you're doing something that's a solo or a duet or a trio, you change it because that's really featured. If you're doing ensemble and, and that movement is something you really think is, is right, then sometimes you pull a body or two out or you just spend extra time drilling it if you know that they can't get it. So it's just... But that's just, you sort of have a, an instinct for that, if it's going to work or not. I've always felt that that was one of the greatest strengths. Your greatest strengths is you could make, you know, your cast looks like they all know what they're doing, even though you're sure that they couldn't have, and they're, they're not all dancers, and you've been able to make it look like they know what they're doing. It's a gift, I think, to be able to, and, th and, and that's why it's always, I've always wondered about that. At what point do you say, this is never going to look right? At what point do you say, this is just not worth, as you said, putting the actor through the stress or, and, and no matter what, in your head, having done this so many years, you could say, I can see that this is going to hit a brick wall. 
It's not going to ever go any further than this. I'm just going to change it. Because Lynn Kurzel from Auto Shows always look like the dancers know what they're doing and everybody fits their movement. Because your job is to make your cast look good. Hmm. And that is actually, I think, one of the best things about an older choreographer rather than a younger choreographer, aside from the fact that you have a ton of experience and many more you know, tools in your tool research box. writing and more tools, is that you're not dancing choreographing for your body like a lot of younger choreographers are choreographing on their bodies for themselves and i mean that's certainly how they develop a distinct style mm -hmm. but you know gwen verdon i remember um i forget what book i was reading where she talked about how bob loved to jump and she wasn't she didn't like to jump so much and so you know he'd be putting all these jumps and you know that wasn't necessarily her thing but of course she could do tons of things he couldn't do so when he was still dancing and putting everything you know specifically all the stuff that as an athletic young man he loved to do sometimes that can hinder you sometimes that can hinder you in creating the world for other people but really your job aside from telling the story is to make everybody on that stage look good and choreography is more is is more than dancing it's entrances and exits it's uh, you know, I, I remember laboring over certain things in a in a rehearsal, and you'd say, "Well, can I? I have a suggestion here," and it would be something that would just smooth things out and just make it seem much more natural. And again, I'm sure that just comes from experience, but your background in dance and body movement certainly has something to do with that, I, I assume. Yes? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's looking at the stage picture. You know, it's fitting the what what square peg goes into the square hole and not, you know, seeing how, or watching, just watching it in, you know, several times to say, oh, I see they made a cross like this, mm -hmm. but if this person comes here or goes out there, it's going to make it easier. And to be fair, the director is looking at a hundred other things. Oh, so you can take yeah. your, your, you know, you can take your eyes and focus on, let's see what this picture looks like with the movement going this way instead of this way. And so exactly. you, to take that off the director's shoulders is a gift. Well, and that's that's why, you know, when you do get the opportunity to collaborate, you know, because usually I direct and choreograph my own musicals, mm -hmm. but it is, you know, when I get to choreograph straight plays or to, to work like that in collaboration or it, like for American in Paris to have an assistant who could do that for me, mm. take certain things and be able to watch while I was worried about, because that was all the scene changes were choreographed for that. Sure. And we had tons of projections and I had, I literally choreographed, you know, where people would exit so they could make this very quick costume change. And then uh, everything was, um, was done. So it was nice to, it's nice to have someone else be able to watch something specific while you're looking at the big picture, for sure. So Lynn, what does the future hold, do you think? For, for you personally, yes. For Not for the world, because we, we don't have that much time. I've already kept you much longer than I wanted to, but no. I, I, I just, I, there's so many questions. And, and I knew some of the answers also, because we've talked other times, but I wanted to make sure other people heard them. But what's coming up for you that you can talk about that you think will definitely happen? Well, um, you know, it, it's interesting because with this whole situation, of course, I've had several projects canceled. Of course. Um, that are just dead in the water and will not come to life again. But we are, you know, praying beyond that the Kabanoki season will go ahead. So, of course, um, Something Rotten mm -hmm. is supposed to open Curtain Up, and we have a phenomenal cast for that. And then I'm doing We Will Rock You. No, Rock of Ages. Sorry, Rock of Ages, yes. Up, Rock of Ages, duh. I am directing and choreographing, and I don't even know the name. <laughs> Rock of Ages, I always mess up those two. And then Kinky Boots for Musical Fair at 710 Maine. Oh, you are doing so, Kinky Boots, okay. I am, I am. That's been on my bucket list, as has Something Rotten. Something Rotten and Kinky Boots have been on my bucket list since I saw them on Broadway. So I'm very excited for that. I I don't know. I I actually applied for Social Security. I wasn't planning on, quote unquote, retiring. But, you know, I figure, well, maybe the universe has some other things in mind. I'm helping Lorraine to write up some 
courses for the MFA that they're developing at uh, Duville. Yes. So I am contributing a little bit on that uh, front, but I don't really know yet. I do. I'm supposed to be going back to Brazil in 2021 to remount Little Mermaid. Who knows if that will happen? Because yeah. um, we just, again, we just don't know. The world is in a crazy place right now. And, um, you know, I, of course, they always say on the news there's lessons to be learned from this. And I think there are lessons to be learned from this. And I hope that um, they are the right ones that people take away with them. I agree. About what is important and how much you actually need. I think things, I think you're right. I think things will be a lot different. Hopefully they will be a lot different in a good way. Uh, We will learn a a better way to crowd 300 people into the theater and we will learn a better way to attend sporting events and so on. We'll we'll learn a better way to do that, hopefully. Right, Um, right, hopefully, yes. But I also, I mean, I pray that theater comes back. Theater artists are among the hardest hit. Oh, yes. And, you know, we were talking about this in the car the other day, how, uh, no, I was talking about it with Mary Jekiel. We were walking in Forest Lawn the other day. Social distancing, of course. Of course. (laughs) Outside in those big lanes at the Forest Lawn, but how the fact that theater artists, these young people who are making their careers in places like New York, what is their second industry? The restaurant. Yes, yes. Which is, and bars, Mm -hmm. the things that are also hardest hit. So it's just, it's a a very difficult... Or even um, personal services, cleaning houses, and even those things. Oh, nannies. Nannies, yes. Nannies, I mean, it's just... It's just crazy. And then, of course, everything that we do together, dance classes, going to the gym, all those things that you cannot do mm-hmm. that are part of our everyday life as artists. It's been it's been an interesting experience. But I've read a lot of books, and we caught up Me on too. every sing, every single movie we did not see <laughs> that was up for an award this year. So we caught up on all of those. We watched lots of miniseries. We watched <laughs> Many, many things and, and some television that we never got to see the first time around. So now we can binge through multiple seasons of stuff. Right. So that's been a good thing. <laughs> I have one last question for you, Lynn, and I'm going to let you go because, as I said, sure. I've already kept you too long. It almost seems uh, trivial to ask this question now, but th- this is a uh, this podcast is called Off-Road. And it seems like a trivial question, but I'm really curious. If I were to take you off-road and off the road that you are on, out of theater, out of dance. Imagine a crazy world where all of that was missing. What road might you have taken? Well, what other interest I, might you have had? As I said, I actually entertained. I wanted to be a librarian. So I have... I The love for books? The love for books. So who knows? Maybe that would have been in my life somehow in some way but I have a feeling somehow I would have wound up in something that was creative or took your mind to places that didn't necessarily exist in the real world because that's of course what I love about books right of course aside from gaining knowledge is the fact that you're and I actually think that's why I'm a good director choreographer because reading so much when I was young I mean I spent very little time watching television it was reading and listening to music. You know, my parents listened to everything from classical opera to, you know, Frank Sinatra and Perry Como to contemporary music. And But it was the reading, the fact that those words paint pictures and your mind goes to a completely, a, a place that you actually inhabit for That's a right. while. You can take a trip without ever having left your couch, which is yeah. what we're all getting too used to. <laughs> Lynn, thank you so much for talking to me today. You know I love you. I owe you so much that we'll get into some night when we can finally get back together. But it has been a joy talking to you. I I appreciate it. Take care of yourself, you and Michael. Stay stay safe and sane, and uh, I hope to see you real soon, dear. Thanks, Peter. Love you. Bye. Well, how about if I take some tissues and plug up the nose holes and the mouth holes and the... Oh, never mind. Well, I hope I didn't sound like too much of a fanboy on that, but I just love that woman, and I love her work ethic, and I love her style, and I was so happy to have her on Off-Road, RLTP's podcast. Listen, 
In two weeks, we will have a new podcast for you, and things will be a little bit different. Now, don't worry, I'll still be here, which is, you know, bad news for some of you. But we are going to change things up a little bit. We're going to try to reflect the times we're living in a little more and try to give voice to a lot more people. Because a lot of people have been affected by this, and uh, a lot of people aren't getting the opportunity to speak out and uh, say what needs to be said about their organization. And I'm talking about more than just the theaters in Buffalo and Western New York. I'm talking about other hard-hit entities all around us. So we'll try to give voice to those people, and I hope you will enjoy the changes that are coming soon. But I'll also tell you this, that representing the theater world, at least, will be Chris Handley, who's taking over the reins at the Alleyway Theater. And he will be our primary interview in the next podcast, which comes up in two weeks. So I hope you listen to that, and I hope you'll watch Facebook for your opportunity to participate in the next podcast or many more in the future. So watch Facebook for an announcement about that. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, this is Off-Road, an RLTP podcast with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.